This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, historian Dr Emma Shortus from RMIT joined me to discuss the life of feminist icon, the late US Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We also discuss the implications of her passing on the looming US presidential election, as well as all the latest in US politics. Then, finally, Nick McClellan, Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story magazine, joined me to talk about the upcoming independence referendum in New Caledonia. We explore this second independence referendum and what it would mean to New Caledonia should they vote yes or no on October 4th. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm really delighted to have with me Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And we're going to be talking all about the latest in federal politics. But first up, let's talk about the football, Ben, because, um, I mean, it's something that you and I both follow. And uh, it's very exciting because Geelong and Brisbane are through to the finals, um, but we might have to forget the fact that Port Adelaide um, is uh, at the top of the ladder. Yeah, it's it's good to be here, Amy. And, uh, yeah, I do love our little footy chats. Um, Bring it well, back is what I've decided. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations. congratulations to all the teams that made the top eight, including Port Adelaide yeah. and the minor premiers. And also, um, well, I mean, Geelong have been minor premiers many times in previous years, and that meant nothing for the grand final. So I'm not going to put too much um, into it, but they have been doing particularly well all throughout the year. Um, So, yeah, they've been pretty consistent, haven't they? Yeah, I think that'll be a cracking first round of the finals. I'm a bit worried for the Lions, actually. We have to play Mm. Richmond at the Gabba, Mm. which has been a massive hoodoo for us. That brings Uh, back very bad memories of last year. Yeah, absolutely. We haven't beaten them this year either. So, <laughs> Yeah, would you long struggle with that too? So, yay. Um, but, yes, that will make a lot of people at Triple R very happy. We have many Richmond supporters at Triple R. Um, but also it was exciting to see that Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs have also made it because um, they've had so many struggles. And, of course, particularly thinking about St Kilda as well, we've got – three um, Victorian teams who have had their own struggles in recent years. It's very impressive for the Victorian teams if you think about the challenges of this season. Mm. So um, I think, you know, the AFL has been a good news story in terms of being able to get footy up and running and playing. Um, You know, uh, of course, you know, they've they've had uh, infinite resources to be able to do that. Um, But nonetheless, it's been an impressive uh, feat, particularly of programming and scheduling. Mm, it has been. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, West Coast versus Collingwood as well. That's um, interesting. It is a bit sad that uh, the elimination final, um, you know, will will pull out. Oh, no, it wasn't Melbourne, sorry. I'm talking my brain so faded. Melbourne, Western Bulldogs shafted Melbourne, so Melbourne didn't get through. Well, that's an unsurprising situation isn't it another year of heartbreak for the days yeah, no, i don't i'm like i remember talking about this um with my family just the other day and i was like gosh melbourne or western bulldogs who do you feel for more it's kind of hard to say <laughs> yeah there's a couple of cinderellas there well at least you know at least the bullies have won a premiership recently so true. very true i'm constantly reminded that st kilda hasn't won a premiership since the 1960s so 
You well, never know. They had their chance in 2010, didn't they? Oh, oh. And 97. Twice in 2010. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, I remember that now. So many exciting things. So, anyway, now that we've got that out of the room. Yeah, do you want to talk politics now? We probably should. Um, I mean, it's all related, isn't it? Because AFL has been caught up in a lot of politics. It actually has because um, of the coronavirus issues and the fact that Queensland did step up and support the AFL. But Queensland has certainly not had a great um, a great go of it in terms of the relationship between uh, the federal government and Anastasia Palaszczuk. So it is kind of somehow caught up in politics. Um, In terms of coronavirus, let's start there because, of course, it does tend to feed into a range of issues. We now have finally seen um, the numbers in Victoria reach much lower levels and the Chief Health Officer here, Brett Sutton, is very happy about it. That said, I should just tell everyone I got all very excited because we had 14 cases one day and 11 the next. Today we have 28 So um, that's maybe not as great. And as you can see, there's still a lot of fluctuation going on in the figures. But we are seeing um, a lot of discussion happening about what to do when we get the numbers under control. How will Victoria open up again in a way that isn't going to lead us to another third wave, like something that happens and puts us back into lockdown? And I think it's on a lot of people's minds um, just how that's actually going to be achieved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, once again, we get into the finer details of the epidemiology, which I'm not qualified to opine about. Of course, that hasn't stopped anyone else from (laughs) talking about it uh, over the last six months. But, you know, um, I think uh, uh, it is time to pay tribute to the effort uh, of the Victorian government over the last couple of months, particularly Brett Sutton and Daniel Andrews, getting us from, you know, a 14-day rolling average of something like 400 cases a day, a peak of 700 cases at the worst day, um, down to, you know, really now pretty manageable levels of community transmission. Uh, I think it's a tremendous public health achievement. Mm. Um, it's been There's been a lot of sacrifices and, of course, there's been a lot of damage to the economy in the process. Uh, but I think we should, you know, we, it's time to not exactly take a victory lap, but it's time to, to give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back um, particularly as citizens of this city, which is we've done it pretty tough, um, you know, and I think the majority of Melburnians have done the right thing. Um, they've listened to the public health advice and, and the result is what we're seeing in, over the last couple of days. Indeed. And it's interesting that um, when we look at things like, you know, polling and sampling of what people actually think, um, the broad majority of people do actually support the state government and what they have been doing to get the numbers down. Of course, everyone is frustrated with what's had to happen in order to get them down. But it seems like in the media in particular, we are continuing to hear and get a lot of amplification of some very small but loud voices. And we see news stories over the weekend, for example, of a small protest has erupted in Chadston Shopping Centre with, you know, 20 people shouting with a couple of placards and that makes, you know, Channel 9 News. These are the kind of things that I find concerning, Ben, and I wonder if you do in terms of the debate that we're having and the fact that it's not... It kind of feels like it echoes the climate change debate in the sense that these really loud fringe voices 
are getting a huge amount of um, airtime and energy to the detriment of those who are very um, balanced, nuanced and science-based. Yeah, I've been dismayed at the media coverage, uh, particularly of the Victorian lockdown. Over the last two months, it's been... Uh, it's ranged from patchy to downright biased, uh, particularly, yeah. um, particularly obviously in the News Corp stable of newspapers. Um, you know, th th there's been, I think, a, a fundamental disconnect between, yeah, what ordinary people are thinking and doing, which is broadly supportive of Dan Andrews, um, and the overwhelming media narrative, particularly from the right of the media, which has been that Victoria is some kind of Stalinist state, you know, locked down in some kind of totalitarian gulag. Uh, it's just not reflected in the opinion polling figures, and I think it's a little bit divorced from reality, actually. Uh, it is deeply concerning, you know, that our media seems unable to have a sensible, rational, evidence-based debate about these kind of things. But, yeah, as you rightly point out, why are we surprised? You know, mm. The media has long struggled to hold a rational evidence-based debate about a range of public policy topics. So I suppose it was inevitable that the same would be the case for coronavirus. You know, it hasn't been helped by the partisanship of the, the Liberal Party and the coalition. Um, you know, at a, at a state level, they've been largely irrelevant because they've been just so silly. Um, but at a national level, Morrison's actively campaigned against the Labor state premiers, particularly Andrews and Palaszczuk. Um, you know, he's abandoned any pretense to the we're all in this together kind of line that he ran uh, at the beginning of the crisis. And now he's been actively attacking both state premiers for, you know, daily partisan political advantage. Uh, it hasn't really rubbed off poorly on him, at least nationally. Uh, but I think it reflects very poorly on him as a national leader. I think it does too. It certainly looks very petty, to say the least, but it also looks ineffectual in the sense that he isn't um, uniting the country like any leader in a crisis should and would have done in the past for something that really has affected every country across the globe um, of all times to not be partisan. Now would be the time. Just I'll like, as we know, with climate change. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true um, and very disappointing, but perhaps mm. not surprising for Morrison. But I'll tell you what has been interesting for me looking at the coronavirus response has been the resurgence of Australian federalism. I think uh, for a long yes. time people sort of forgot that we had these quite powerful states and territories uh, in our constitution and in our system of government. Um, but I think COVID-19 has really sort of uh, reminded us that the states uh, have a lot of levers, a lot of policy levers. They are responsible for mm. very important aspects of public policy like health and education. Um, and, you know, they can also close their own borders to other states. Uh, so it's been a really interesting, I think, kind of civics lesson for a lot of Australians uh, to remind us that, you know, we, we have this federal system of government and in which who controls the various state governments actually does matter. And it matters a lot in terms of the response to things like a pandemic health crisis. Yes, it does make you relieved that there are these things like separation of powers and federal, <laughs> the federal system and the states. Um, ben, in terms of some of the federal issues that do affect every state, and of course there are still state levers that one can use and we have seen different states use in this policy area, and that in particular is energy, 
Um, and there have been a number of um, announcements all under one kind of banner. Um, there's this kind of new plan that Angus Taylor um, has released, and uh, he has, I guess, suggested that this would be a replacement to the National Energy Guarantee, which is the thing that <laughs> we associate with Malcolm Turnbull and somehow... We, goodbye, National Energy Guarantee. We scarcely yeah. knew you. Barely knew you, exactly. Um, so many graphs, no one really still understood it at the end. But um, Malcolm Turnbull, of course, you know, that was a major reason why he was turfed from the party. Now we're seeing this kind of very odd mosaic of um, ideas and decisions that are, or, that are being made. Of course, not all of them can be taken without support from the parliament. But uh, we have seen a few things. One in particular is that the Morrison government says that um, that solar and wind are currently commercially viable and competitive with fossil fuels and therefore they don't need subsidies from um, the new funding that they have decided to apportion $1.43 billion into um, new energy options. And they've also suggested... Um, that they will focus instead on things like hydrogen, which is something that Labor had focused on at the last election and that the coalition had belittled. And, of course, coming making a strong comeback is carbon capture and storage. Um, and apparently energy efficiency is now a, a thing, um, which, of course, it always has been. But um, one of the things that I found particularly interesting is that this morning Mark Butler, the Shadow Minister for Energy um, and Climate Change, suggested that Labor would support research into carbon capture and storage, putting money into research for that, but not to take it away from the renewable energy um, funding kind of round. What are your thoughts on on the return to of things like carbon capture and storage, which don't have any really strong basis in um, science in terms of being effective enough at a large scale? Yeah, well, there's two schools of thought about what Taylor's doing here. The first is that, uh, you know, he's actually doing a bit of cautious policy reform um, and throwing out a few things like carbon capture and storage to keep the right wing of his party happy. Uh, the other thought is it's just a giant troll to enrage lefties. Uh, it's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, the, the energy sector is cautiously optimistic about some aspects of this policy announcement. For example, the government has decided to continue funding to ARENA, the Renewable Energy Agency. That's positive, but he's also rewriting the rules to make ARENA now cover fossil fuel <laughs> energy as well. Yes. Uh, so, and the uh, ARENA, for anyone who's wondering, is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. <laughs> That's correct. It's a, it was created in 2010 by Gillard um, as part of the deal with the Greens to do the carbon tax. Um, it's been very successful in backing early stage renewable energy projects. Um, of course, you know, we still seem to have these zombies like carbon capture and storage floating around. They, they're unkillable. Uh, carbon capture and storage has never worked. Uh, it's never been commercial at any kind of scale. Uh, and I expect that it won't work this time around either. But governments just love burying money in the ground, apparently, on this stuff. 
Um, and so once again, we're going to we're going to do it. Uh, I see that soil carbon has made a, a comeback as well. Uh, this was a sort of centerpiece of Tony Abbott's uh, short-lived carbon capture policy back in 2011. Once again, it's this kind of idea that you know we can somehow do a bit of extra farming techniques and that will capture soil out of the atmosphere. Um, the science on that is is reasonably skeptical. Um, not so much that it can't be done, but rather that um, you know this government will actually do it properly. Um, and you know I don't think anyone believes this government genuinely wants to reduce Australia's carbon emissions. In fact, Morrison over the weekend um, refused to commit to meeting Australia's Paris climate change agreement targets. Uh, which, is, again, is not news for anyone who's been following this government over the last seven years. So it's hard to be optimistic about the climate change implications of this policy. Um, you know, I, I suppose it, it could be worse, which is, you know, about the best we can say from this government. Mm. And we did hear uh, more actual details about Scott Morrison's supposed gas-fired recovery plan um, early last week, but it was after our chat. And in particular, we were <clears throat> we heard that. Uh, let me just find the quote here. Where's it gone? Um, so, Scott. Square, yeah, Scott Morrison repeated um, a claim he made at the press club in February saying there is no credible energy transition plan for an economy like Australia that does not involve <clears throat> the greater use of gas. Um, so there seems to be this kind of obsession with gas in Australia at the federal level at least. Um, why is this something that uh, Scott Morrison and the coalition for a very long time have been fixated on? Uh, well, you know, I think that the short answer is ideology, Amy. Um, you know, this government has decided that gas is the, the way of the future, which is pretty ironic because it's fundamentally the way of the past. It's also put a bunch of gas executives in charge of Australia's planning for the economic recovery. So perhaps it's not surprising that these former fossil fuel executives have come up with a fossil fuel plan. Uh, but it's hard to, say, to take it seriously. Gas is a tiny employer. There's just very few jobs in gas. It's a highly capital-intensive industry. It's big factories, big pipelines, and not many workers. So I can't see how this can be a genuine economic recovery. And anyone who's looked at it carefully, as the Australia Institute has, has come up to the same opinion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there was discussion around um, the closure of the little plant, little power station, which is a coal-powered um, station, and what would replace it in terms of um, energy. And we did hear, you know, some um, interesting figures like uh, entrepreneur Mike Cannon-Brooks say that he might bid to replace the little plant. Um, who knows if that was a, a real suggestion or a thought bubble. But it is interesting um, that that has become also a really um, central kind of wedging tool of, well, we need to replace it and so, you know, someone had better come up with a plan, otherwise this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I think Liddell has been a political football now for a number of years. It's 
you know, it's been manufactured essentially by the coalition as some kind of wedge on on fossil fuels. But the reality is we don't need it. You know, we just don't need another. We don't even need the extra energy generation. The government's own task force found that it, Liddell just didn't need to be replaced. It could be there was enough uh, renewable energy coming on stream in New South Wales to more than cover the gap. You know, maybe, um, you know, you might need a bit of extra generation here or there. Um, but we certainly don't need a spanking new coal plant with, you know, a couple of gigawatts of uh, stationary power. So once again, it's just it's just a political talking point that the government uh, uses. It plays well on the right wing media. You know, you can get talking points out on 2GB and Sky News. But, you know, once again, anyone who's looked at this seriously knows that this is just a waste of money, ultimately. Mm. And um, and there are concerns around uh, whether the coalition is kind of undermining the effectiveness of the renewable energy sector by continually, um, I guess, undermining uh, that sector and, and not providing the kind of certainty and support it needs. And it's something that we've spoken about for a very long time. Um, what's the status in terms of how industry um, from the renewable energy sector is looking at the coalition's uh, policy announcements? Uh, well, yeah, it's been seven years of undermining, hasn't it, Amy? Mm. I mean, it's, it's been a it's been a long campaign attacking the very idea of renewable energy from a uh, succession of coalition governments under Abbott, um, Turnbull and Morrison. Um, so how is industry reacting? Well, mostly they've just been getting on with the job trying to build renewable energy because it's profitable. Um, there's been a slowdown in investment in renewable energy in the last couple of years. That's related to the, the build-out of the large-scale renewable energy target, which finishes up in 2020. Um, and also, I think the fact that, uh, you know, like the, the sort of low-hanging fruit there is starting to have been picked. So, um, you know, there's not as many kind of gold opportunities. Um, you know, there's plenty of resource, obviously, there's plenty of sun and wind, but um, it becomes an issue of policy certainty, as you mentioned. It's also about whether those investors think they can make money or not, you know. Um, so uh, there's been a slowdown in investment. What we really need is a new renewable energy target to drive the next wave of investment. Uh, we need that for reasons of carbon emissions, um, and, which, and it would also drive electricity prices down, but we won't see that kind of forward thinking from this government. No, no. And uh, Labor don't seem to want to stick their neck out just yet either. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Labor's uh, not sticking his neck out on much at the moment, I'd have to say. At all. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking off air with you, Ben, about uh, an interview with Mark Butler on ABC this morning. And he wouldn't even say that he thought Daniel Andrews was doing a good job managing this pandemic. He just wasn't interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's it's hard to know where Labor's at at the moment. I feel like they're just trying to bunker down and get through this period mm. uh, and survive almost until 2022. Uh, it's very hard, as we talked about last week, to be in opposition during a crisis like this. Uh, voters tend to naturally rally around the government of the day uh, and oppositions tend to be irrelevant. And I think Labor's taken that on, on board and, and they're just trying to keep their head down until such a time as voters have started listening to opposition parties again. And that may not be for some time. Mm. That said, 
I did um, think about the fact when I have um, spoken about, you know, getting women into politics and we talk about what the role is of a parliamentarian, one of the key roles is to actually represent your local constituents. And I feel that when Labor sticks their head down and um, avoids that, that perhaps they aren't necessarily going to, you know, have that front of mind. And it's something that not even Labor are kind of guilty of. It's something that many politicians can uh, forget to do or not do or have front of mind. And at times party politics can um, take over. Yes, well, party politics is the name of the game. So it it often takes over, Amy. Um, But, you know, um, I I think you're being a little bit unfair. I mean, plenty of backbenchers do very strong work in their electorates. We just don't hear about it because it's down at the grassroots level. Uh, So I think that's, you know... Yeah, um, they may at the local level, but I'm just saying in things like climate change, for example, that will affect us in, in a very serious way and locally, like with bushfires, we do actually need to have you know, a stronger plan or at least a stronger argument or debate um, and push back against some of these, you know, ridiculous announcements that we have been seeing, even if they are to troll um, some people, you know, they are actually still going to put forward legislation. So this is, you know, a legislative troll. Yeah, the opposition's role is to oppose. And I think a lot of people would like to see the Labor opposition doing a bit more of that at the moment. Mm. Now, Ben, I did want to bring up something which did puzzle a range of people. Um, Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, is gearing up to deliver a budget and he got a little bit of a boost um, when he came out on Thursday to talk about the Australian Bureau of Statistics' latest release of the Labor Force data, um, which suggested that unemployment... Um, was actually going down across Australia with apparently 111,000 more jobs in August compared with July. But that said, um, unemployment has risen in Victoria um, with a loss of 42,400 jobs in that same period. So um, how do we understand these figures and the, the kind of massive smile on Josh Frydenberg's face um, when he found, you know, a positive news story about the economy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the answer is that there's two different Australias at the moment. There's Victoria and there's the rest of the country. As the rest of the country starts to exit out of coronavirus restrictions, the economy is starting to return uh, and, you know, jobs are being created. Uh, I think we need to be cautious about these jobs figures. They showed that there weren't a lot of full-time jobs being created. There were a lot of kind of gig economy kind of uh, small business type roles being casual and, um, yeah, you know, uh, freelancer type roles being created. So to what degree this is a robust recovery, I think that that's very much open to question. And then, of course, you've got the Victorian figures, which are pretty depressing. So the Victorian economy really has been hammered by this second wave and there's no getting around that. Um, But, I mean, I think it just shows, once again, what The Economist have been saying for a few months now, which is that if you can get on top of the health response, then that gives the economy a chance to recover. So, uh, you know, I I think uh, we're not out of the woods yet on this recession. It's going to be a pretty rough ride, particularly over the summer. Uh, There'll be, you know, a big reduction in the government's welfare payments in the coming week or so. They're slashing JobKeeper and also the job seeker supplement, 
Uh, that's going to take money out of the pockets of the unemployed um, and, uh, you know, JobKeeper recipients, and that's going to hammer aggregate demand. So I wonder if that sort of little bout of austerity might actually impact the unemployment figures going forward as well. Mm. Yes, well, these changes, um, the the first round of changes is a $300 a fortnight cut to that supplement, which um, was added to JobSeeker student and parent um, parenting benefits. And that's happening on the 25th of September. It's interesting to hear, and as you've just um, slated, that it could actually affect the economy in a very negative sense and cost the economy $31 billion and 145,000 full-time jobs over two years. So, um, you know, as we know and have spoken about on this show so many times, um, when you are providing these kind of um, payments to those who are definitely going to be spending it and not saving it, that actually is a boost to the economy, whereas the tax cuts that the coalition um, is proposing to push through once again are likely to do barely anything to actually support the economy. Yeah, that's right. It's another triumph of ideology over sound economic policy. Uh, Cutting government welfare payments in a downturn is called austerity. That's literally a definition of austerity. And it does exactly that, what you just said, Amy. Uh, It takes money out of the pockets of those who need it most and who are most likely to spend it. Uh, which means it doesn't get spent and that harms the economy. Yes, meanwhile, Morrison is pressing ahead with uh, moving forward the very unfair and unequal tax cuts that were passed a couple of years ago. Uh, These will be huge tax cuts for the wealthy, but they probably won't stimulate spending that much because the wealthy at the moment don't have a lot of money to spend on. Uh, You know, they've retained their jobs. This has been a tremendously unequal recession. So uh, the rich really have got richer and the poor have really struggled. And so tax cuts for the rich is not likely to help the recovery for the simple reason that those guys are already sitting pretty. You know, if you're on 180 grand a year, uh, you know, and you've retained your job in this downturn, uh, your main challenge is finding things to spend it on. You know, uh, I read a stat the other day that luxury car sales are up, you know, which is a very strange statistic to see in a recession, but I think it points to uh, the very unequal skew of the coronavirus downturn. Yeah, it's a massive skew. Um, Ben, in terms of the other element to this, which will be front of mind for many job seekers, potentially not those in Victoria yet, um, as mutual obligations are remaining at a paused stage in Victoria while we're still dealing with these um, tough restrictions. But they, the government has decided that, in fact, uh, job seekers will now have to apply Um, for numerous jobs, in fact, more than they were expected to um, before. So they're going to now have to search, uh, where is it, for about eight jobs a month um, and that that it would not actually be realistic in terms of the jobs that we currently have available. Um, What are your thoughts on this in terms of the expectations that we're putting on job seekers who are clearly, um, you know, if if the economy is in a recession, they're in a very difficult spot in terms of finding um, appropriate work near where they live? Yeah, well, mutual obligation has never been mutual. It's always been 
well, the academics call it welfare conditionality, and I think that's a better phrase for it. Uh, it's about placing conditions on people getting their welfare in order to play to you know stereotypes and political prejudices about lazy job seekers. Uh, of course, there are very few jobs at the moment, so even if we create this paperwork for the job seekers to fill in, it doesn't mean they're going to find a job. There just isn't the jobs out there in the economy. Uh, so this is uh, you know back to the future for the coalition standard practice from people like Anne Rustin, the social services minister. This is uh, this is welfare bashing, pretty much pure and simple. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they are actually changing the assets um, testing as well. So apparently about 300,000 people will be taken off JobSeeker because of those changes. So there's uh, more and more announcements and alterations to this situation as we go. And as you've already just mentioned, that really is austerity and um, we're kind of following the example of the UK. Yeah, and it's a tragedy because if you look at the example of the UK, they had a slow and prolonged recovery to the global financial crisis after 2008, and it was because they implemented all these spending cuts in 2010, and that really delayed their economic recovery. In fact, they had a double dip. They went back into a recession, and that's the risk for Australia. You know, like as the economy comes back, that's great. Frydenberg can get on the telly and smile, uh, but if they start to uh, slash and burn welfare payments, uh, you know, through the summer, that's going to really crimp aggregate demand, and that's going to hurt the economy. And we do risk having a very slow and halting recovery in 2021. Mm. Um, more to discuss, I'm sure, at a later stage. But um, thank you so much, Ben, for chatting about so many different issues today. And hopefully, with our numbers kind of going down, um, that we will eventually see the end of stage four restrictions in metropolitan Melbourne and, uh, and hopefully also um, not see those uh, deaths which do continue. Three people lost their lives today and um, many of them, as we have heard this week, have been related to aged care outbreaks. So um, let's hope that that gets under control um, in a sustained sense for the future. Yeah, fingers crossed, Amy, and always a pleasure to chat. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and it is fantastic to be with you this Tuesday morning. I hope you're having a good week. And uh, we might be putting a little bit of a downer on the morning but it is very important and I will lift the mood at the end with a very uplifting song. Um, So there is light at the end of the tunnel, but who else would you rather talk about a difficult topic with than a wonderful thinker and articulate person such as Dr. Emma Shortis, who is a historian based at RMIT. She's a research fellow at the EU Study Centre for Excellence. And Emma regularly joins me to talk about US politics, though it has been a little while. And um, I did want to pick up on some of the things that we've missed, Emma. But first up, welcome and thank you so much for joining me again. Oh, thanks for having me back. It is always an absolute delight to chat with you about US politics, which, um, you know, you can't really say it's delightful, can you? But you are delightful, so that's a good thing. (laughs) Thank you. Too kind. 
<laughs> it's true. So um, first up, I did want to talk a little bit about the Democrats who, you know, don't really get a whole lot of airtime at the moment um, because Trump keeps kind of taking up the space. Uh, but in terms of the final platform um, and really the two people leading this platform, we've got Joe Biden, who was, of course, the vice president under Barack Obama, and we've also got Kamala Harris, or some people say it, call it, you pronounce it differently, like Kamala um, yep. or Camilla. So maybe correct me on my pronunciation, but um, how did we get to this point where, you know, we've seen, um, I guess, something particularly substantial happen in the sense that um, Kamala Harris, who is a woman of colour, is now the vice presidential candidate for the Democrats? Yeah, so so Kamala, I think, is the is the right pronunciation. I keep, I keep okay. practicing and, and hoping that I'm getting <laughs> it right. Um, so so you're right. It is it is hugely significant, I think, to have to have a woman of color and and a woman of South Asian descent as well in on the on the Democratic ticket on the ticket of a, a major party, and that's come about largely because I think of the uh, well, at least partly because of the Black Lives Matter movement. So so the Biden campaign was, I think saw the importance of, of acknowledging that campaign and appointing a woman of colour to that position rather than going down, I guess, the usual path of, of picking, you know, another white guy or mm. or um, even a white woman. So, so symbolically, I think that was really important. But I think Biden also, um, he, re he really values her, Harris's input. He, he sees her as a really important thinker, uh, an up-and-comer in, in the Democratic Party and, and vetted her really carefully. I think it has to be said, you know, the Democrats are really conscious of the attacks that are going to come from the Trump campaign and how, how effective those tactics are. You know, as you said, Amy, how good he is at kind of sucking all the air out of the room. Mm. And so they've, they've made that choice of, of Harris, I think, for that reason. She also has some really strong um, policy cred. She's coming out of California. She's a lawyer. She has a, a background in, I think, fighting again for, for equal rights as a as a trailblazer, really in that area, much like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and I think so. Biden admires her for that and sees her as a really strong campaigner. She's a really good communicator. You know, one of the the I guess most noticed moments out of the Democratic debates was when she actually attacked Joe Biden around his record on race relations and particularly his support of of busing. So so busing black kids into to white schools to um, I guess try and dismantle segregation. She landed these really effective blows on Biden and some people said that she'd kind of done him in that after that mm. you know, his campaign was over. But I think it, I actually think it reflects really well on Joe Biden that he, you know, has taken those attacks and has kind of, it has actually, I think, reflected a bit on, on the way that he, it, you know, his policies at that time and the way that he sees them now and, and is willing to have those discussions with a woman who he sees as his equal. So, so all of that, I think, is in, you know, pretty, pretty stark contrast to, to the Trump administration. Very stark, yes. Um, it does also remind me of an early interview that um, Kamala Harris gave with Stephen Conroy. Not Stephen Conroy. Oh, my God, I'm still in federal politics land. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Colbert, very different people. Um, Stephen Colbert on his show, which is also still um, social distancing and, and not in studio, but she, um, he, he actually asked about that moment in the debate 
and she her only kind of answer to her great takedown of um, Joe Biden was that it was a debate. And so it, nothing more could be read into it than the fact that it was a debate and I'm expected to do that. So, you know, nothing to see here. And some people had criticised her as, you know, not kind of acknowledging the significance of what she had done at the debate and kind of downplaying it a bit. What are your thoughts on that kind of that political strategy that she had to to downplay the tensions mm-hmm. that some people had been reading into or at least, you know, seeking to, to ask questions about? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a good question. I think sometimes the though the debates and the nomination process get overblown in that mm. people assume those rifts are, are kind of insurmountable. But but a lot of the time what it is is actually quite a healthy process of a party debating itself, of coming to, you know, having arguments about policy which are, are difficult arguments and aren't things that can necessarily be settled in a couple of hours. You know, sometimes these arguments go on for quite literally decades and they're important discussions to have. So I think... I think what she's kind of getting at is that, you know, the party isn't necessarily united across those policy platforms, but that's not a bad, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's, that's a healthy democracy in, in action. So I think she's right about that. But I also think part of the reason she's, she's downplaying that is, is political strategy. You know, it's attempting to, to present a united front. And I think it's also, you know, it's partly about the Democrats trying to walk this line and, and Joe Biden in particular trying to walk this line between supporting the Black Lives Matter protest, between, you know, acknowledging the the justifiable rage and hurt at the centre of that movement and attempts to kind of begin redressing that racial inequality at the centre of American politics. So there's that on the one side, but Joe Biden's also trying to walk a line where he appeals to white suburban voters, you know, those kind of mythical Rust Belt voters in Detroit or, or Michigan or whatever who've gone to Trump and who he might want to win back. So so I I think that's part of what the walking back is to is to say, you know, we're not going to be too radical on racial reform so that we're not pushing away these white voters. And it's a very difficult line to walk. And I think it, you know, remains to be seen whether that will be effective or not. Mm, it is a difficult line, especially given those protests that we've seen. And, of course, the activism continues. It's not something that has necessarily gone away. It's just something that's become less visible in the news. Um, one of the, the kind of good news stories that I did want to pick up on, because there aren't that many, um, <laughs> but I was very excited about hearing about this, is that um, we've now got the the final list of nominees of who is actually nominating for the House. And uh, we've seen that women now constitute a record 48% of all Democratic House nominees this year. Uh, which is a massive thing, and I believe it hasn't been done. And then also um, that the Republicans have also increased their um, their women, uh, I guess, portion of nominees from 13%, which is obviously a very low base to go from, but it has um, sprung up to 23%. So we've now seen um, pretty much half of all nominees for the House positions on the Democrat side to be women. That is a pretty important thing to note and a great development, don't you think? Yeah, I do, I do think that. And that's building on, on 2016 as well when we've, we saw 
a huge number of women, particularly Democrats, swept into Congress, kind of represented, I guess, by by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and the squad, the, these young women yes. of colour who were rising stars in the Democratic Party. So I think we're seeing we're seeing that being built on, which is really exciting. And and women mobilising, you know, sometimes out of fear, I think, of, of the Trump administration and, and anger as well. We've seen women play a huge role in the Black Lives Matter protests, often often driving that movement. So that's that is, I think, really significant. You're right. And and on the Republican side, I think it's really interesting to watch as well because I think part of what that's about, and also, you know, Trump saying that he's going to nominate a woman to to the Supreme Court, that is about the Trump administration as well seeing white women voters or white housewives, as Donald Trump likes to call them, as really significant to the vote in November. So getting that vote out and also ensuring that white women stay with Trump as they did in 2016. I think the Trump administration is quite worried about polling that's suggesting that those white women college-educated white women in particular, are, are straying away from Trump. And so that, that part of that is trying to, I guess, reassure them. You know, part of the reason there were so many women at the Republican National Convention was about reassuring white women that it's okay to vote for Donald Trump because women support him, you know, despite some of his um, less his, – his horrible comments, I should say, yeah. about women and his horrible horrible behaviour. You know, part of this is is reassuring women that it's okay to still vote for him. Yes, it's sad that that is something that you need to do. Is like, oh, don't worry about the allegations of sexual harassment mm. that continue to come out. You can, yeah, vote. even just last week. Yeah, literally. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is. It is just. Uh, I'm I'm so struck by just how extraordinary it is that there is a, a president in the White House who has been credibly accused so many times with with such consistent stories that are corroborated by um, you know other witnesses at the time and you know they just kind of float into the news cycle and then float right back out again and it doesn't seem to have any impact on the president whatsoever. It is it's it's horrifying and it just keeps happening. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and and it is very consistent, as you've said, um, and it's very brave of the women to mm-hmm. say that and to take a stand and to be public about it because it is something that they definitely do not um, have any kind of positive uh, effects for in terms of the the kind of public um, backlash that they can receive from Trump supporters, which has been you know particularly um, brutal to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing talking about women and, of course, the Supreme Court. Um, This is, you know, it was something that so many people were shocked, saddened and um, upset by, but also disturbed as well in terms of the future implications, and that is the fact that um, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday US time. And she died from complications of cancer. And we know that she had many health struggles and was very, very um, resilient in, you know, combating them across her life. And her mother died of cancer at a young age um, when she was young as well. So there's so many, um, you know, hurdles that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had actually pushed up against uh, during her life, especially as a, a young woman when she was studying law and seeking to get into the legal profession, um, which was still dominated by men. Um, but one of the interesting things, and I don't know, did you see the, the RPG documentary? 
Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I loved watching it. And one of the great things and things that really stuck in my mind permanently was her beautiful relationship with her husband, Marty. Just so, oh, what a what a dream partnership because, you know, he supported her as much as she supported him. It was a really two-way street in terms of their careers. And also um, something that always stuck out in my mind when they were talking to her children was that um, she was never allowed into the kitchen because that would be a total disaster. Um, so Marty was the, the only one in the kitchen doing the cooking. And it just really, you know, at the time um, when, you know, this very, very progressive kind of relationship was unfolding, um, you know, that was very rare. But the fact is it's still kind of rare for that to happen and for a woman of her stature to reach such a high level in um, in the legal system in America. So, yeah, it was it was kind of lovely watching that documentary to hear of those really human stories um, and to see just what it takes um, in terms of the kind of support structures one needs mm-hmm. and the hard work one needs to get to where she got to. That's right. I, I think that's what I took out of it too, Amy, that, that importance of community. You know, sometimes... Beta Ginsburg is held up as this kind of solitary figure. And she was an extraordinary trailblazer, as you said. You know, one of the things that really stuck out to me in that documentary was that photo of her at at Harvard Law School when she's in the Harvard Law Review and she's the only woman in just a sea of men and and what that must have been like. And, you know, as she said many times, that it wasn't that long ago. You know, the, the first woman was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1981. So the the trailblazing that she did is just extraordinary. But that that documentary also made really clear how important how important the people around her were. You know, the people that she worked with, the fact that she had this incredibly supportive and progressive partner, but also the way that you know President Bill Clinton when he had this a chance to fill a Supreme Court seat, you know, she wasn't near the top of the list. The reason she, part of the reason she got to the top of the list was because her husband worked behind the scenes, kind of um, pulling strings for her and, and convincing people to listen to her. But then she gets into the room with President Clinton and he basically just immediately is is struck, struck by her brilliance, um, you know, her, her progressive credentials. And, and he said, you know, within 15 minutes, I decided that I was going to nominate her. And you see that again and again, you know, in the, in the scenes where in her confirmation hearings in the Senate, where Joe Biden is, is chairing those sessions, you can see the open admiration on his face for this, for this extraordinary, um, this extraordinary woman. And I think, you know, part of the reason we've seen this outpouring of grief for her is is a reflection of that. You know, it's a, a reflection of the effect that this very sort of quiet, retiring, but fierce intellect and I think fierce protector and promoter of, of women's rights has had on the American political landscape. And that, that's why people are so, it's part of the reason why people are so devastated, but it, it's also because her loss means, could mean uh, a reshaping of the court potentially for, for decades. Mm. Yeah, it really, really has major effects on um, legal precedent and legal decisions, decision-making in the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in America. Um, to We'll get to that in just a sec, but to go back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for those who haven't watched the documentary or, you know, read the articles um, that that go back on her life, some of the, you know, really interesting uh, legal cases that she took up, she actually ran with her husband as well. 
um, which I really found interesting that they were a team kind of coming up with some of these strategies. And um, I'm thinking of that one case, the, the kind of early case that they saw where they were actually advocating on behalf of a man um, in order to achieve equal rights, not just for um, women, but also for men. That's right. Yeah. So that that was an early case where uh, a man was widowed. His his wife died, and he was left to care for their for their brand new baby, and had applied for social security support in order to do that, and was told that he didn't qualify because he was a man. Those those um, supports were only there for women, and so they took this this case on, and and it was I think part of her of Beta Ginsburg's broader project around not just discrimination against women, but gender discrimination more broadly. Her argument was always that gender discrimination hurts everybody. And so this case was kind of representative of that, but it was also, as um, as Gloria Steinem, that feminist icon, said in, the, in that documentary, strategically it was really clever to use a man in those cases because, you know, as, as Ginsburg often said, the Supreme Court was, it was all men at that stage and it was her job to try and appeal, try and explain to these men who weren't particularly interested in hearing about it, what gender discrimination did and how it affected women in particular and why it was important that the court addressed it. So, you know, not only was it an important case, it also demonstrated how clever she was strategically speaking, you know, in that extremely male-dominated environment of, of American law and American politics. Mm. Yeah, it's such a really interesting case. And it is true that um, that gender discrimination mm. affects both sexes, of course, not always in the same way. Um, one of the also the other kind of interesting points was that um, there's this term or phrase, notorious RBG, um, and she's kind of seen as like this, I don't know, gangster, I guess. <laughs> she's certainly not a gangster, but do you know what I mean? Like she's she's tough, but she's cool, um, you know, and fair-minded, but and somehow that's very gangster. Um, and apparently it was started by a second-year student at New York University School of Law, um, and I just wondered about this massive um, popularity, resurgence of popularity. I mean, she was already well known, but, you know, in recent times she really has made it in popular culture and she's become such a figure. You know, her image has been illustrated so many times by various artists. Her um, films, multiple films have been made about her life. Um, and she herself has become basically a bit of a celebrity or had become um, towards the end of her life a celebrity appearing on so many different panels and events um, and those becoming more and more reported on, more and more um, high profile. What are your thoughts on how she became um, later in life, I guess, a, a pop icon in a way? Yeah, she she absolutely did. And look, I think that's that's partly because, you know, those young women who who wrote the book about notorious RBG, I think they were um, you know, they're really taken by this extremely strong woman who survived you know, learned going to law school in in the United States that was so dominated by by men. This this kind of little pocket rocket who's who's so fierce and doesn't take anything from anyone is is of course something to be admired. But she also kind of I think lent herself to the to I guess to meme culture uh, uh, the meme culture of the internet because she did um, really iconic things like whenever she dissented from a, from a majority opinion at the Supreme Court, she would change her collar so she'd wear a different lace collar which became known as her dissent collar. So she's really 
good at that kind of symbolism, I suppose. And that also came with um, just an, an amazing ability to communicate. So when she did dissent from majority opinions, she often wrote very accessible opinions that are easily quotable and, and spoke, I think, to to the heart of some of the rifts of American politics. So one of her more recent dissenting opinions was around the Voting Rights Act and and the disenfranchisement of of so many minority Americans, you know, in places like Florida where um, small crimes are designated as felonies in order to disenfranchise mainly black, young black men. And she, her dissenting opinion, I think, was was short it was sharp and it spoke to the heart of those issues and of course that appeals that appeals to young people in particular but i think it's also you know it's kind of reflective of of a bigger problem at the heart of american politics in that individuals and and particularly women in this case are invested with so much responsibility uh, you know that that Bader Ginsburg is kind of was has been for for a number of years carrying the hopes and fears of american progressives across the country because she for better or worse was kind of seen as the one thing holding holding back the conservative justices of the Supreme Court who were bent on, you know, attacking women's rights um, when it comes to abortion, who were attacking measures uh, aimed at gun control and things like that. So this this one this one woman is is invested with both so much power and so much responsibility. And it's, you know, it's completely unrealistic to to put all of that on one single person. That's not how political systems can or should function. So so while I think it's it's so important and and she deserves all of those accolades it's also really important to to be conscious of of what that means for our politics yeah i mean there was so much pressure on her as you say and people were even obsessed with like what was her workout routine how was she keeping mm-hmm. fit so she would stay alive long enough <laughs> yeah exactly imagine people talking about oh you that way God. and then on you know on the republican side people basically sort of hoping that she would die it was mm. it was awful the way that people spoke about her and in the aftermath of her death you know the kind of the the glee on the part of some conservatives is is kind of it's really sad, I think, to to see that the way that these positions are, are treated and the way they kind of dehumanise the people that are in them. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got to say I was really um, emotionally affected when I heard that news because not only did I look up to her but also I immediately knew what the implications were or potential implications were and that is something which no person should have to bear and um, we've even seen that you know she dictated a statement to um, to someone at the end of her life and we've even seen Donald Trump come out and undermine that and suggest that that was made up by the Democrats um, which is just ridiculous um, but it's just another example of how, you know, even in death she's been kind of undermined and um, her word um, having so much, I guess, uh, credence and pressure put on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so she she dictated, I think it was to her granddaughter, that she her, her most fervent wish was that her seat will be, will not be filled until after the presidential election. Um, and that's, you know, of course, because of the, I think the, 
the desire on the part of conservatives to install a, a, a conservative judge and, and cement a, a six, what would be a six-three conservative majority on the court, um, and that is, that is tied up in in an enormous amount of politics around around the confirmation process and and what has happened before, what Republicans did in in twenty in at, towards the end of Obama's term, and now to have Donald Trump come out and say, oh well, you know, she probably didn't say that, and and but also to not even care that she said that. Mm. You know, I don't think they're making any any pretensions about caring about fulfilling her wishes. They are intent on on filling that seat as as quickly as they possibly can. Yes, and it's really angered the Democrats who um, have a past precedent to to point to, which of course is not legally binding. Um, about the fact that the Republicans did not uh, approve or vote on their um, Barack Obama's uh, proposed um, nominee for the Supreme Court because it was in an election year. But apparently that's no longer an important argument. That's right. It's it's interesting how how politics can can change so quickly, isn't it? And so so that is right. There's what's happened in in towards the end of Obama's term was Justice Antonin Scalia died, who was a conservative justice, and Obama was you know well within his rights to to a make a nominee to fill that seat, and the Republicans at the time who who controlled the Senate, led by. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to even have a hearing. They they argued that it was an election year and the next president should fill the position, which completely, you know, was was within their, I guess, legal rights in the American political system, but was a complete departure from the, the norms of American politics. And now, faced with the same situation, you know, at the time, people like Lindsey Graham were saying, you know, use my words against me in the, in the final year of a presidential term, a, a, a SCOTUS um, judge should not be confirmed. And now, you know, fast forward when we're faced with the same situation and Republicans are saying, well, that doesn't apply because we control the presidency and the Senate. So we are, we are within our rights to appoint a Supreme Court justice. But, you know, I think it's interesting because those arguments are, they are completely hypocritical. Mm. But they, the Republicans don't care. You know, they they have that they have the power to do it, and getting a conservative majority on the Supreme Court has been a generational project for conservatives, particularly evangelical Christians in the United States. And faced with that opportunity, I I think that Republicans are going to seize it. Yeah, I did hear a statistic um, this morning <clears throat> about uh, the Democrats and their. Um, project about the Supreme Court and that apparently they haven't nominated a Supreme Court majority since 1969. Is that the case? Yeah, as, as far as I know, that, that is the case. I think um, the conservative side of politics has been much more focused historically on the Supreme Court than, than Democrats. It's been much more of a mobilising issue, particularly around um, abortion rights in, in on that side of politics. And so there's been a big focus on the Supreme Court and it has been a, a mobilising factor for conservatives and particularly um, evangelical Christians. It's part of the reason you can... You, you can explain their support of of Trump, who is a figure that you know ostensibly you would think conservative Christians would not support because mm. of his his history of you know being divorced however many times, the, the, his history with women, and you know his general his general language, I suppose, and the fact that he is quite clearly not has not been in in the past a, a particularly religious person, but because he has had this ability to appoint Supreme Court justices and has promised to that base that he will appoint conservative justices, you can explain that support, I think. So Trump is certainly hoping that this will be mobilising for his base. And I think Republicans in the Senate as well, people like Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who 
you know, is the one who's, who's basically out being openly hypocritical about it. He's facing a, a pretty tough race uh, for his re-election to the Senate, and he will focus on a Supreme Court justice in the hope that it will mobilise his base of, of conservative supporters. So I think on the conservative side of politics, this this is seen as as hugely important, and as you know, to kind of contradict myself, I guess, as much as it they will be focused on re-election in November. Again, this is also, historically speaking, a much bigger project where conservatives have been focused on getting the Supreme Court because they see that, rightly, I think, as, as a way to shape American politics, to shape the laws of the United States around things like abortion, around gun control. And it's a, a really effective way of wielding power. And I think Democrats are only just kind of really catching up to that now. Yes, as we've seen, it is so effective um, with how Trump has been using it. And I do want to pick up on what you've said around abortion rights um, and the current breakdown, or I guess when um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive as of you know, Thursday last week, what was the split on the judicial panel in terms of um, conservative versus progressive? Yeah, so it was it was really close. It was basically a 5-4 conservative majority, but Chief Justice John Roberts, who was appointed by Bush uh, Bush Jr, he is is regarded as somewhat of a swinging vote, so he will occasionally side with the um the more liberal justices on questions around um sometimes abortion, but it's sort of he was regard he is regarded I suppose as a bit unpredictable. Mm. So that's the reason why there was so much invested partly in in Beta Ginsburg as well because because there was potential at least for for the conservative majority to be split by Roberts. Now that she, that Beta Ginsburg is no longer on the bench, that, that majority is of course significantly less. So now we're looking at a five, a sort of four, five, three split if there's eight justices on the bench. But if Trump is able to appoint a conservative justice, which again, I, you know, I think he's more than likely to be able to do, that then becomes six, three. And a, and a solid conservative majority. And in the immediate term, I think that is potentially really concerning for progressives because, you know, if we're looking at something like a contested election come November and that makes its way to the Supreme Court, if you've got a 6-3 conservative majority, you're, you're almost guaranteed, it depends It depends on the nature of the case, but you're almost guaranteed a, a result that favours Donald Trump. So, so this potentially, again, you know, I can't, I can't understate how much this could shape American politics and therefore global politics, again, just for generations, not just in the medium term. Yeah, it is so significant for every one of us. I remember talking about this with you when we were talking about Brett Kavanaugh and how substantial and important that appointment was, which it certainly was. Um, But this certainly does bring it all home. Um, One of the things that you just referenced there is the outcome of the forthcoming presidential election. I actually had this weird thought this morning, I was like, oh, why haven't we had um, presidential debates yet? And that's because one's coming up. Mm-hmm. How exciting. And that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it did, you know, make me think, well, there are actually two people in this race, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Um, you know, neither are particularly inspiring, although one certainly is um, more inspiring than the other. And um, I don't even think inspiration should come down to it because as uh, we have discussed on this show so many times is we've now seen under Donald Trump's watch um, so many 
Americans die from COVID-19 because they have opened up really quickly um, because their healthcare system is not robust. So many different reasons. And of course, it's not just the, um, the kind of the Donald Trump uh, presidential, I guess, um, level of government that oversees these things. Of course, they are one major player, but there's also the states as well. Um, and I wanted to ask about some of the kind of key election issues, which, of course, we've just talked of one of them, the Supreme Court now um, being one of those really key issues. But what are some of those other issues that you think might be a factor in terms of voters when they're considering who to vote for? Um, you know, what will they be thinking about? Mm. Look, I, I think you're right to to point again to to COVID nineteen. I think you know part of part of the reason that Trump has jumped on this Supreme Court thing so so heavily is is because it distracts from his administration's appalling handling of of this global pandemic, which has is has now claimed upwards of 200,000 lives. So it's just extraordinary numbers. So I think absolutely that will be on people's minds as they go to vote, you know, as it should be. Um, the the economic collapse that has come with that, the, the inability or the unwillingness of, of Congress to pass legislation that supports people through economic collapse will be a factor. I think the Black Lives Matter Matters protests will also be a factor, a mobilising factor for Democrats in particular or, or people who are more inclined to vote Democrat, but also on the other side, potentially, you know, I think Donald Trump is at least hoping for a kind of, I guess, a white backlash against those protests. Part of the reason that he's appealing again to, to white women around law and order is to is basically to appeal to those racist instincts once again. Um, and it's it's also the reason the Department of Justice is attacking, you know, so-called so Democrat cities in, in order to appeal to that white vote. So there's that. I think that also on the West Coast in particular, climate change is, is constantly underestimated as a, as a factor in, in elections, not just in the United States, but, but here. But I think particularly for young people who increasingly see that issue as tied up with the Black Lives Matter protests around environmental and economic justice, that is potentially a mobilising factor. You know, when Donald Trump is going to California, which has seen its worst fire season on record, also its hottest August on record, and is now looking at its hottest October on record, for the president to go there and and tell Californian officials, oh no, actually the scientists don't know anything. It's going to cool down. You know, just wait oh, and see. It'll cool shocking, down. Yeah, video. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is shocking, and I think it 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 should be shocking. So I, I think part of that will be will be mobilising. But I I also think kind of tied up in in all of that is a is a conversation about how just how dangerous Donald Trump is and and essentially what is ascendant fascism in the United States where Trump is saying things like if you take out the blue states the democratic states from death tolls around covid-19 actually we're doing pretty well cool. you know when you see him attacking um the teaching of american history and the acknowledgement of the central role of slavery in american history and insisting that federal agencies take out teaching of racism and um, inclusivity training, that kind of fascism ascendant is, I think, mobilising people to vote. To You know, as much as Joe Biden, as you said, is not particularly inspiring, I think there's a real effort on the part of progressives and young progressives to encourage people to vote for their lives because mm. for a lot of people it, it is quite literally a, a matter of life and death. So 
there is there is just so much tied up in this election and it is you know i think it's kind of impossible almost to to disentangle how everything relates to each other and, and what motivates people to vote but then there's also the question you know to get back to your to your question about the postal service that we've spoken about before, I think people are really frightened and and rightfully so about whether their vote is going to count and how things are going to play out after election day when people are voting by mail because they're afraid rightly of a of a global pandemic, what that's going to mean for their votes and, and how they're counted. If it is contested, if Trump refuses to accept the result of election an election, what does that mean in terms of the Supreme Court? And then, and that's why, again, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at this time puts so much pressure on on an already buckling system. So, again, to, to play my usual role, Amy, of, of just bringing everybody down, this this is a, an absolutely crucial tipping point for for the United States. It really is. I I've, I can feel just how important it is when you're talking. It kind of puts terror in my mind. Um, <laughs> I, w- I was actually reading an article about the United States Postal Service, which apparently has seen a severe decline in the rate of on-time delivery of first-class mail after Louis DeJoy mm-hmm. took over as Postmaster General. Um, and uh, and he's also apparently a major Republican donor with no prior USPS experience. So I was kind of wondering about that because it's not really something that is just hearsay. There are real changes happening in the Postal Service, as we did discuss last time, that are actually potentially going to affect the outcome of the election if someone does send um, their postal vote via the mail. Yeah, that's right. So you're right that the the head of the USPS is a is a Trump supporter and and was put in there, you know, basically with the project of of starting starting to dismantle the USPS because, you know, I think the interests of capital even before Donald Trump were were after the USPS because it has this monopoly on on um, mail delivery services and it's part of a, a I guess a bigger project to to privatize um anything run by the state but then it's it's tied up now with the postal service in in mail-in voting which which trump has been attacking for a long time um and we have seen because of deliberate policies in the usps a, a slowdown of mail delivery which is is extremely concerning for voters not just because of voting but because of things like the delivery of medicines in in a yeah. pandemic and also the fact that um the american tax system runs on paper it runs through the usps so so people filing their tax returns uh having trouble as well. So it, it has huge implications. But that slowdown of delivery times, I think, is going to be crucial because as much as legally speaking, there is there is plenty of time to count the votes and it's okay if, if mail-in voting, you know, isn't counted or doesn't come in until after election day. Essentially, legally, Congress has until January to confirm the result of the election. But Trump is laying this narrative where everything, you know, he's saying that only votes counted on election day matter. Anything else doesn't count and is is subject to fraud, which, you know, again, is is completely untrue. But by laying that narrative, he's laying the groundwork for challenging an election in the courts, you know, much as we saw in the year 2000, but in very different circumstances, I think. So, so that's why that's really scary because, you know, <laughs> just speaking of terrifying people, I am, you know, it strikes terror into my heart to think about the day after the election, you know, if we don't, if there isn't a clear result that we are going to face 
just utter chaos in the United States as as there are legal fights over counting in a system that is already chaotic, you know, that mm. is, is different from city to city with officials who are appoint who are political appointees. You know, these systems aren't run like they are in Australia by, you know, so ostensibly um, apolitical people who are, who are appointed to independent organisations. These are political um, political people who are appointed to do things like oversee elections. So, so the the potential for chaos there is, I think, really significant. Yeah, it is. I feel like um, you know, normally with an election, we'd be talking about policy issues like climate change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, front and centre. And now um, I feel like any kind of discussion of policy in America might be very unlikely coming up to November. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I think like the Biden camp at least is is doing as much as they can to try and talk about policy, to talk mm. about what they'll do, in, you know, in terms of a global pandemic, but also in terms of climate change. Biden has a, has a quite radical um, policy platform around climate change and around um net neutrality, a carbon neutrality by sort of 2050, getting back into the Paris Accords. Mm. So really significant and, and progressive policies because of things like the Sunrise Movement and the Black Lives Matter protests. But getting the airtime to talk about that stuff, I think, is really difficult when when all of a sudden, you know, Biden is forced to talk about the Supreme Court and maintaining the norms of, of American politics. So getting that cut through, I think, is, is going to be really difficult. And it is, it's very hard to not just talk about personalities, I think. Yeah. Let's hope, even though the debates are not usually that meaningful, that at least some questions about those types of issues will be asked and potentially reported on. So you can only hope. Yeah, yeah we live in hope. Cross fingers. You never know. <laughs> Thanks so much, Emma, for joining me today. It's been so wonderful to get into a really in-depth chat about US politics um, at a time where it matters more than ever. So um, I really do appreciate your expertise and time today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Amy, as always. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's so lovely to be with you on this Tuesday morning, as I do, between 9am and noon. And anyone who has listened to this show for a little while would have heard the dulcet tones of Nick McClellan, who has a wonderful voice for radio, I've got to say, and he's also an excellent writer and journalist. Um, I was really excited to hear this year that Nick was awarded the Sean Dorney Grant for Pacific Journalism by the Walkley Foundation, which means that he's been producing some really wonderful long-form pieces of journalism. He's been doing some fantastic interviews, and anyone who's heard from Nick would know that he does spend a huge amount of his time in the Pacific on the ground in various places, including Fiji. Um, and so given the coronavirus, it must be particularly tough to not be there at the moment. Um, but we're going to be talking with Nick, who has great connections um, with people in New Caledonia and the rest of um, Fiji, for example, and other Pacific islands. We're going to be talking about a really important issue that we have discussed in the past. Um, there was a previous uh, referendum on independence in New Caledonia, 
Um, and that was only about two years ago. And we're now seeing another referendum on the same question happening in October. Um, and this is a really important issue for people in New Caledonia. And, um, and we're going to be talking about that. Nick has written an article for Inside Story, of which he is now the Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story. And he's also works as a correspondent for Island Business Magazine. So I welcome Nick McClellan now. And thank you so much, Nick, for joining us again. Amy, great to be with you. Yeah. Yeah, look, two years ago at this time, um, I was actually working in New Caledonia reporting on the lead-up to the referendum. It's quite a unique situation in decolonisation. You know, New Caledonia's got a, a multiracial population. The Indigenous Kanak people, uh, Melanesian people, are, are mostly in favour of independence, but many uh, European, French uh, arrivals over many generations, uh, people who've come from other parts of the Pacific, such as Wallace and Futuna and other French territory, are opposed to independence. And so 20 years ago, the people signed an agreement called the Numir Accord, and that set out the gradual transition of powers from Paris to um, New Numir, the capital of New Caledonia. It set up a new Congress and provincial assemblies, political institutions, and it created a unique situation that at the end of this 20-year transition, um, there could be a referendum on independence, but not just one. If the vote was no in favour of staying with the French Republic, then um, a second and indeed a third referendum could be held. And that's quite unique in the history of decolonisation around the world. So, as you said, the first vote was held two years ago, November 2018, the polls at that time predicted that there would be a significant defeat for the independence movement. Indigenous Kanak are only about 40% of the population, so they're a minority in their own country. And the feeling was that, you know, there'd be a real setback for the independence cause. If politicians I interviewed at the time said that 70% of people would vote no for independence, uh, no for staying with France, and only about 30% yes for independence. When the final poll came on the night of 4th of November 2018, in fact, 43% of people said they supported independence. Not a victory, obviously, but close enough to 50 to give everyone a shock. And that's yeah. why we've come to this second vote, which will be held in just uh, 10 days' time, the 4th of October. Mm. It is really exciting to see, you know, given that there was such a close result, that it is being put to the, the population again. And, um, you know, also really interesting to hear about those dividing lines, um, particularly uh, the overwhelming support for independence among the Indigenous Kanak people um, who make up nearly 40% of the population. In terms of um, the, the intentions voting intentions of various uh, parts of the population, do you think it divides fairly neatly along those lines or does it segment across other interest groups or um, factions? It's changing. You know, it's clear that the, the vast bulk of, of the Kanak people support independence. There are certainly some who don't. And um, there's also the majority of non-Kanak voters, people of European Polynesian, Asian heritage uh, stay 
favour staying with France. You know, that's a pretty clear dividing line. But it's not that clear. As I say, the Canucks are less than 40% of the population, but they got 43% of the vote last time. So mm-hmm. they were there. The other factor that happened was a lot of people didn't vote. Voting is not compulsory in um, France, and so turnouts vary, and turnout varied across the country. So um, overall, about 80%, I think 81% of people participated in the referendum. But that still leaves a pool of about 33, 34,000 people who didn't vote last time. And what we're seeing now is that both supporters and opponents of independence are very actively campaigning on the ground, trying to rally not only their own supporter base, but um, uncommitted voters. Uh, and that involves explaining to people, you know, what would be the costs and benefits of moving from being a, a French dependency to being an independent and sovereign nation. Um, and some of that's done through hope, some of that's done through fear, some of that's done through analysis. You know, when I was there in 2018, some people of European heritage were worried about losing the French passport, losing access to uh, work and study in the European Union whereas others um, felt, no, look, we live in the Southern Hemisphere. Our close neighbours are Australia, New Zealand, other Pacific Island countries. We should be building better, closer trade links with with, uh, people in the region. And that's certainly happening today. Uh, New Caledonia's closest trade partners uh, for exports is China, Korea and Japan. Um, through the export of nickel, which is the main resource of the of the country, massive reserves of nickel ore and nickel metal are being smelted, and um, their key trade partners are in the Asia Pacific region, not in Europe. And those historic changes mean that there is a growing shift amongst the population towards a new political status. Yeah, um, I want to ask a little bit about how French culture ties into this, and also the particular three anti-independence parties that make up an alliance in 2020 called the Loyalists, um, and they're called the Les Républicains Caledoniens, uh, Les Républicains, and the Mouvement Populaire Populaire Caledonien. Um, And these are three movements um, led by various people, as you write in this article, and they um, no doubt have, you know, strong views and are putting forward strong arguments against becoming independent from France. And I wondered, you know, what type of arguments are they putting forward and whether any of those arguments are tied to things like uh, French culture or French heritage and and, and playing into those types of colonial um, links that some people might um, see as particularly alienating to the Indigenous peoples. Absolutely, and that's really what the battle is about. Um, the the uh, Kanak Independence Coalition, the FLNKS, the Kanak National Liberation Front, says, look, we're a, a Pacific nation. We're not European. Um, there are people of European heritage who live here, but we're not part of Europe. And yet, bizarrely, uh, people in New Caledonia can vote for the EU Parliament in Strasbourg. Um, the French are a bit different to the British. Uh, you know, British Anglo-Saxon colonialism has always had a tradition of second-class citizens so that um, you can be uh, part of the British Empire, but you don't necessarily get the full rights of citizenship and nationality. So people in Hong Kong, for example, you know, used to be a British colony, but they couldn't automatically migrate to, to, to the United Kingdom. 
daughter and so on, um, don't have full rights of British nationality. That's different for the French Empire. If you're part of French territory, French overseas territory, you're French and you have all the rights. In fact, the French Constitution talks about the indivisible republic. And this has been the central tension that not only Kanak people, but other supporters of independence say, well, that's a historic legacy of 19th century colonialism in the 21st century. We're certainly happy to engage with France, given the history, the language, the croissant, you know, all, all the benefits of French colonialism. Um, but uh, we want to be able to manage our own affairs. And so on a whole range of issues, everything from uh, coronavirus to climate change to uh, trading with neighbouring countries like Australia or Vanuatu and so on, many people in New Caledonia are slowly moving towards a position where they want to run their own system. And if I can give you an example, that's been very clear with what's happening today with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, very early on, New Caledonia had a, a small number of cases uh, with international travellers coming in, some from Sydney and some from France. Um, and uh, very quickly, the independence movement and Kanak customary leaders said, no, we've got to shut the country down, shut the borders and control uh, that. So after 26 cases total, um, most of whom have now been uh, cured and out of hospital, um, New Caledonia doesn't have any COVID and they're within their own little bubble. They don't want um, too much um, pressure to bring in people from outside. And that's true like many independent Pacific countries. They want to control their borders. There are economic consequences, but they feel that that's on balance important. They look at France, which has had... Uh, 31,000 deaths. Um, uh, last, you know, they're up to sort of thousands of cases a day. And people in New Caledonia say, well, we don't want to follow that path. We want to run our own affairs. And they look at French Polynesia, which doesn't have the same level of authority as New Caledonia to control its own governance. And French Polynesia, under pressure from the French, opened up to tourism in mid-July. They're now up to 1,300, nearly 1,400 cases of COVID. So people in New Caledonia say, you know, our, our control of our own affairs has allowed us to ride uh, the wave um, of, of coronavirus like independent countries. And there are 10 independent Pacific Island countries that, uh, despite economic consequences, have managed to survive the pandemic by just locking down and closing borders. Mm. Well, that was something I did want to ask about because, um, you know, thinking about these Pacific Island nations, there are so many that traditionally have been a holiday destination for Australians and many others. Um, and so obviously that is one kind of sector. No doubt there are, as you've you know, mentioned there, um, other sectors like resources, including um, nickel for New Caledonia. But in terms of... Um, you know, you mentioned their French Polynesia and um, the fact that they now have 1,300 cases. When you're dealing with, um, you know, disparate islands or smaller islands, you know, grouped together like French Polynesia, how does a, a country like that actually um, deal with such a huge influx of coronavirus cases? And would it be of a similar challenge if New Caledonia um, had, a, had the same thing happen for them? Absolutely. And, and you know, the, by uh, regional standards, the health system in New Caledonia is pretty good. 
Um, they have a lot of funding that's come from France, from Australia, from other partners. Um, serious cases get medically evacuated to Sydney, so that's been a, a complication. People in Numea who have particular health problems that can't be treated locally are evacuated to Australia. It's only a, a few hours' flight from the coast, east coast, so it's a, one of Australia's closest neighbours. Um, but this has been a, a real challenge. Some countries have been harder hit by the loss of tourism. Fiji, Palau, Cook Islands are just three countries, Vanuatu, that about 40% of their economy before the pandemic came from tourism. So they've obviously had a, a huge hit. And just as Australia has faced, um, tourism, hospitality, uh, the many workers who directly or indirectly employed in that area have lost jobs. And that's been a terrible economic and personal impact. New Caledonia's done better than others, though, because it's a mining country with uh, massive reserves of nickel and other strategic metals. And they've continued exporting to China during the, uh, during the last six months and so have managed to get revenues and income. On tourism, too, I interviewed the president of New Caledonia just a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that, in a funny way, our tourism sector's been okay because the main hotels, the international hotels, have lost a lot of tourism, obviously, with the borders closed, but we've been using them to quarantine people flying in, very much on the Australian model. I think somewhat better run than the Australian model. Um, but... Um, People who normally go holidaying in France or in Australia, New Zealand, are holidaying internally. So there's actually a mini boom of tourism where highly paid French public servants who live in the capital, Numea, are going bush for the first time. Rather than travel for a holiday to Sydney, they're going up north, going to the islands, going to the rural areas. So the economy is sort of ticking over. Not perfect, obviously. Everyone in the world is facing a, a significant recession. But relative to some other parts of the Pacific and certainly to the other French territories like uh, French Polynesia, New Caledonia is hanging on. And um, I think that's part of the context for the referendum coming up on the 4th of October. Some people, uh, French loyalists, want to hang on to uh, the skirts of La Mer Petrie, uh, the French motherland. Um, but Canucks are saying, and uh, other supporters of independence are saying, we have to run our own affairs. We have to manage things according to the realities of living in the Pacific. Um, and that's particularly evident at a time that the French government is completely distracted by, you know, a whole range of domestic challenges. Yeah, and we'll get to the French government in a moment. I do want to pick up on one issue which is um, particularly symbolic and then get into some of the more pra practical um, issues of independence. But one of them was about the Bleu Blanc Rouge flag, which is the French flag, um, and the fact that a number of... Um, a number of parties or political parties who've been engaged in this referendum have been using the French flag on their materials as, um, you know, really almost like a centrepiece um, in terms of their campaign material, the tricolor. Uh, French flag. And apparently um, the highest French administrative court rejected a challenge to use this French flag in the campaign for the referendum. And so it seems like there have been, I guess, a couple of, um, of these more symbolic issues that have become quite contentious in terms of how one campaigns on the ground and how one changes the minds of voters um, to whichever side they're campaigning. Um, so I, I did want to ask about 
this kind of the ground campaign and the way that the campaign is being conducted and then um, ask a little bit about the um, particular arguments? Yeah, look, I I think it's it's a really interesting situation. I'm sorry, as I say, that I can't be there as I was two years ago. When I travel in 2018, the campaign varies from place to place. In the urban centre, Numia, the capital, um, which is a town of about 100,000 people, uh, a bit more with greater Numia, you know, surrounding towns and suburbs. Um, it's a very French environment and uh, and so on. So there were public meetings and town halls, uh, lots of debate on the, on the telly and on the radio. In the rural areas, particularly in the Kanak majority areas, where many people live uh, in uh, what are called Kanak tribes, these are villages um, uh, almost like reserves um, that were historically colonial reserves, uh, there. The campaigning is a lot more face-to-face. Um, um, I went out with FLNKS teams to talk to people on the ground about, you know, why they should vote yes for independence. Um, some of the questions were very um, uh, practical. Uh, people saying, well, what happens to my pension, uh, which is currently funded by the French state? Um, will I be able to go and study in France if New Caledonia is an independent country? Uh, you know, people had questions, you know, what we call hip pocket questions that are obviously relevant in any campaign. Um, there's a lot of fear, obviously, from the anti-independence side saying there'll be doom and destruction if you cut cut financial ties from Paris. Um, the independence movement said, well, look, you know, yes, we, we may lose some French funding, but we're not going to com- rupture ties with France. And more importantly, as an independent country, we'd be able to get development and support from a whole range of international institutions, from the United Nations, the World Bank, the Green Climate Fund, from neighbours like Australia and New Zealand and so on, to supplement what we can do on the ground. Um, And the point is often made, too, by the independence movement, that there's enormous inequality in the society. You know, there are French public servants on very high salaries, European-level salaries, plus hardship bonuses for being so far away from us. And at the same time, there are thousands of people living in squatter settlements around the capital, Numia. There's an enormous disparity in uh, in uh, uh, wealth and, and uh, opportunity in education and uh, not only Indigenous Kanak, but also other islanders, people from Wallace and Fortuna and, and so on, are um, amongst the poorest in the society. So those questions about what's in it for me are there. But as you mentioned about the flag, it's also about symbolism. It's also about hope and aspirations and emotion as much as cold, hard logic. Um, And that's where the battle of the flags is so important. The Kanak independence movement, the FLNKS, raised the flag of Kanaki, a multicoloured flag uh, uh, with Kanak symbols on it, back in 1984 when they were first created, and that's become the symbol of their struggle, their quest for independence, Um, and it's often contrasted to the French flag, the tricolor, um, and the French national anthem, the Marseillaise. Um, The Kanak movement says, look, we're not French. This isn't our symbol. Um, But at the same time, they've challenged the anti-independence parties who wave the flag a lot um, by saying, hang on, the French state's supposed to be impartial in this. The French state's not supposed to be biased, and yet here you have the French national anthem, the French flag being used as a partisan symbol during the campaign. So the the battle of the flags 
has been part of that debate and, and really forcing people to, to, to debate what many French nationals don't want to accept, that this is about decolonisation. This political argument is about the transition from colonial status, first created in the 19th century, to a modern 21st century nation. And the, the independence movement believes that if it doesn't happen today, then it'll happen in the future. And um, that the past, you know, uh, uh, the, one of the key leading uh, independence leaders, Paul Neotin, uh, in an interview the other day said, we will never give up our commitment to the accession to sovereignty, the term he used, you know, to become a sovereign nation. And so whatever the result on the 4th of October, um, that, that desire will, is still there, both for older people and a younger generation. Mm. Yes, and in your piece you do mention that a third referendum is possible under the Numea Accord. So um, it is an open option if this, this actual referendum doesn't go the way of the pro-independence people. And, of course, it, I'm sure it does have a lot of meaning for the Kanak people um, if, if it did if New Caledonia became a sovereign nation. Um, one of the other points that you did reference earlier was that there's been a discussion around the difference between the 2018 uh, referendum that we did discuss probably back in 2018, no doubt, but also the referendum this year and that the French government's approach um, and the level of involvement that they've had between these two referendums has been quite different. Um, and some people have been critical of that. Uh, what's your thought on that? And um, what have been some of the, the differences between the two referendums in terms of the French government's approach? In um, 2018, you know, this was the, the, the lead up to the referendum in November 2018, saw an enormous amount of time and energy from the French government. The French president himself, Emmanuel Macron, visited in May 2018, just uh, six months before the referendum. And uh, the prime minister at the time, Edouard Philippe, was very involved in making the thing happen. Um, there were differences amongst supporters and opponents of independence about all sorts of questions. Uh, the limits of the voting um, role, uh, the actual question to be put to people, the date, uh, the use of flags and other symbols and so on. And Philippe expended as Prime Minister an enormous amount of time and energy um, uh, to uh, banging heads together, essentially, to come to a consensus between contending positions. And that was certainly successful. Um, there was an enormous French you know, logistic exercise to hold the referendum. It was pretty well managed and 250 magistrates and bureaucrats were flown from France to monitor the polling booths and so on. Um, Philippe himself, the Prime Minister, came the day after the referendum. Um, I actually travelled as part of the small press pool that travelled with him for the day um, and we, you know, flew around the country in French military helicopters and aircraft and key political leaders you know, the day after the vote, because there's quite a shock that the independence movement did so well at 43% compared to what polling had suggested. The fundamental difference this time is that uh, Macron, the president, is, is heading towards the end of his term and hoping for re-election. He's focused more on domestic concerns. Um, and he changed the government earlier in the year as a, as a way of getting ready for the next presidential elections, which are due in 2022. 
Edouard Philippe is out and a new Prime Minister, Jean Cassex, was appointed, a new overseas minister, a young up-and-coming technocrat, a guy called Sebastien Lecornu, was made overseas minister. Um, and political leaders on both sides, uh, the pro-independence people and the anti-independence people that I've interviewed over the last few weeks, are very critical that they think the French government sort of dropped the ball, that there's no consensus around a whole lot of issues as you mentioned, there have been court cases over the use of the flag. The independence movement wasn't happy about the date and so on. Um, in speeches this year, um, Macron's traditional uh, 14th, day, 14th July speech on Bastille Day, the French National Day, he didn't mention New Caledonia once. Uh, when Castox was elected as prime minister, appointed as prime minister, he gave his first speech to parliament, didn't mention New Caledonia. And people on all sides in New Caledonia are saying, hang on, we're about to vote as to whether we're going to stay in the French Republic or not. You'd think they might pay a bit of attention to us. Mm. But the the French government is, is embroiled in terrible problems. Um, coronavirus, obviously, the health crisis in France is, is out of control. And it's a serious problem um, with growing a second growing second wave in France, as in neighbouring countries like Britain and Spain and so on. Um, beyond that, uh, Macron has uh, faced enormous protests over recent years over the austerity policies that he's promoted. There's been a movement called the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests protests, which have continued, uh, sparked up particularly a couple of years ago, but uh, there was a recent demonstration about a month ago of people protesting on the way that working class people are bearing the brunt of the economic crisis that faces the country. And France is entangled in... Uh, the Brexit debate. Um, France, together with Germany, are major players in the European Union, and they're currently in the midst of negotiating their future um, with, uh, with Britain. Uh, so there's a lot on the plate of the French president, the French prime minister, but people in New Caledonia are understandably a bit shitty that they're being ignored, and uh, they feel that this reflects um, the very nature of, of the colonial thing, that the the France is willing to, to pay attention for the benefits that come from French colonialism, the enormous strategic advantage of having territories in the Pacific, the vast 7 million square kilometre exclusive economic zone um, that it has in the Pacific, 5 million in French Polynesia, 1.3 million square kilometres around uh, New Caledonia. These are incredible uh, economic and political strategic resources to hold but when it comes to addressing the concerns raised by people in New Caledonia, whatever side of the independence debate they're on, there's the feeling that France is not as engaged as it was even just two years ago. Mm. Well, it's not difficult to acknowledge, you know, New Caledonia, I don't think, even in a speech. It's surprising that such an omission is made because it does um, mean a lot, I think, and says a lot about the priorities of the French government. Um, just finally, Nick, in terms of the practical changes of how New Caledonia would govern itself and ha what would happen um, if they did succeed in becoming independent through this referendum? What are some of the important practical changes or differences um, to how that country would operate and, and what would it mean for the people? The independence movement has been negotiating with the French state for some time and they've mapped out what they call a transition. Um, you know, if on the 4th of October, 51% of people voted yes for independence, it wouldn't happen the next day. 
Mm. Uh, they've talked about a three-year transition to address a whole range of practical and uh, political issues um, to map out a timetable for them to join the United Nations, to map out a uh, funding transition. France currently puts in quite a lot of money you know, to pay for its own public servants and, and, and so on. So the question is, would those public servants still stay there but be employees of the government of New Caledonia rather than the government of France? Um, would France continue to give money or would they walk away in a snort? Uh, um, how do they transfer the authority over the final areas, things like uh, defence, foreign policy, currency, uh, the ju judicial system and the courts, all of which are currently controlled by the French state, those final sovereign powers, as they're called, would be you know, mapped out over probably a three-year transition, possibly a bit longer, um, until New Caledonia was its own state. So the key implications for people then would be, um, uh, you know, at what point would there be a transition from French nationality to the nationality of a new republic, probably called Kanaki New Caledonia, a bit like Papua New Guinea, a double barrel name, but uh, reflecting the Kanak heritage and the, the, the French heritage. That would pose a challenge for many French nationals. Um, the obvious question, would you stay um, or would you want to go to France? Um, would people give up their French passport or would they be able to hold dual nationality? Um, hold a passport both in France and uh, and in the new republic. Um, those are a whole range of administrative, legal, financial negotiations that would take place over three years. Uh, a yes vote on on the fourth of October would point them in that path. Mm. People vote no. There's still another chance. There's still another chance. Yeah. 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 Do you think that any of that uncertainty because those negotiations would happen after the referendum would sway anyone either way? That the fact that they wouldn't know whether some of their concerns would be um, addressed? My suspicion is that, that people are uncertain about the future, not just because of those questions, but because of the state of the world. Um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has had obviously not just health impacts, but enormous economic impacts. It's really transformed key issues and sectors. Um, you know, what's going to happen to global aviation? New Caledonia is, you know, 20,000 kilometres on the other side of the world from France. If global aviation doesn't spring back, it's going to be very costly to fly from France to New Caledonia. So that's got huge implications for their economy, for their society, for their culture. Um, what's going to happen with the health system? Um, will the borders need to remain closed or could New Caledonia become part of a bubble with neighbouring countries? And, you know, there's been talk of a trans-Tasman travel bubble. Um, what about a, a Pacific travel bubble? And those discussions are going on within the region. Um, people, frankly, don't want to bubble with France, given they've got 30,000 dead from COVID, yeah. speaking bluntly with all, all respect to the people who've died. It's a tragedy. And people in New Caledonia look at it with horror, by and large. They're really concerned about the French compatriots. Um, so that uncertainty, I think, will probably weigh on people as they go to the polls on 4th of October. And I wouldn't be surprised if people are, are reluctant to take the leap into the future, given that uncertainty.
What mm. is likely to happen, I think, though, is a change in the, the score a few points either way. Um, and indeed, political leaders on both sides have said that to me. You know, one leading anti-independence leader, Philip Gomez, said, look, I don't think they're going to get 50%, but they can win without 50%. If they go up a few points from, say, 43 to 46%, um, that will be a psychological shock for us who are loyal to France, and people mm. will have to think seriously about the third referendum. We obviously want to go the other way. We want to you know, get a much bigger support, and that's obviously up for the people of New Caledonia, the long-term residents of New Caledonia, to decide in just 10 days' time. Um, but I, I think the point is people around the region are addressing this question of self-determination it's not just New Caledonia, but Bougainville and West Papua, people of Guam and others, people in this post-COVID world are going to say, how do we run our own affairs in a global context where, you know, the big countries are looking after themselves and their own interests? And that's a European phenomenon as well. You know, in Spain, the Catalan movement, uh, the Basque movement, uh, question in Scotland and the United Kingdom. I mean, there are many places in the world who feel that at a time of, of global uncertainty, to be able to run their own affairs rather than have some far distant administering power telling them what to do is an important question. Do people have the capacity to do that? That's where, um, as a neighbour, Australia has a role to play. New Caledonia is one of our closest neighbours. Um, we could and should be engaging more with New Caledonia despite the language barrier simply because there are many issues that people there are facing, the same ones that we are. Mm, <laughs> Climate so change. True. How yeah. do you deal with how do you deal with the transnational companies, you know, working on indigenous land? What about the Chinese? Um, all the questions that Australia faces um, are, are ones that, that uh, are also being faced by our Pacific neighbours. And uh, there's enormous potential for us to work together um, regardless of what people decide on the 4th of October. Mm, mm. Nick, it's been so wonderful to chat with you and to get a real insight into what's happening in New Caledonia. And um, I've found it so fascinating to hear about it and to get a better understanding of the, the kind of challenges and questions that the people of New Caledonia are facing. So thank you so much for joining us today and being so generous with your insights. Always happy. Uh, let's keep talking about the Pacific, you know. As I say, these are our neighbours and one of the great failures of the, the mainstream media in Australia is that they don't take the region seriously and to get a sense of what's happening, uh, you know, uh, in the region is so important. Uh, um, and so thanks for the opportunity to speak to people today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.